Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China and the United States hold meetings in Beijing to tackle fentanyl exports and abuse. The International Monetary Fund has revised its outlook for 2024 global growth to 3.1%, and China has set goals for development of future industries to achieve major breakthroughs and leadership in tech innovation. You're listening to Road Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch upon previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. Officials from China and the United States have met in Beijing to address fentanyl exports and abuse. It's the first meeting of the working group on fentanyl precursor chemicals since the two countries restarted bilateral cooperation on narcotics. Zhou Jiaxing takes a closer look. The first formal meeting on Tuesday has been held uh, by Chinese Ministry of Public Security. Uh, while the White House uh, noted that the U.S. delegation includes high-level officials from the Department of uh, Homeland Security, Department of Justice, as well as the uh, U.S. Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, we haven't yet been updated about their discussion, but China's uh, top narcotics control officials previously stressed that the country has been uh, engaging campaigns against fentanyl and its precursor chemicals in crackdown on illegal and criminal activities involving the smuggling, illicit manufacturing, trafficking and abuse of fentanyl-related uh, substances. Amid the geopolitical tensions between uh, China and the U.S., the counter-narcotics uh, cooperation was among the topics Chinese President Xi Jinping and his U.S. counterpart Joe Biden agreed on uh, during their summit in San Francisco last November. To deliver on that, the U.S. side has uh, immediately lifted sanctions on relevant Chinese law enforcement institute, and China also uh, issued a public notice warning export orders of 51 precursor chemicals, many for the United States and Mexico, may face what it called long-arm jurisdiction and even sting operation. And U.S. officials uh, have also accused China of being the primary uh, source of the precursor chemicals uh, synthesized into fentanyl that the Mexican drug cartel smuggled into uh, the United States. Some U.S. lawmakers have blamed Beijing for roughly 100,000 U.S. deaths a year linked to the fentanyl abuse. And that explains uh, the U.S. mode is pressing some char- Chinese, um, you know, charges against some Chinese uh, companies. And Chinese Foreign Ministry also said China firmly opposes smears and unilateral sanctions under the protest of fight against drugs. It says that the Chinese government has always enforced rigorous anti-drug measures with the strictest drug control policy in the world and its efforts widely recognized by the international community. Adding to that, China referred to the U.S. as, quote, a black hole and a source of problem for global drug control, with 5% of the world's population, about 80% of the global opio have been consumed in the United States, making the largest uh, major drug demand country. And the contacts uh, between China and the U.S. regarding vital issues, including military, climate, and anti-drug cooperation, were cut off after Washington disregarded Beijing's opposition and representation to uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in 2022. So Beijing says that the progress now uh, in resuming the cooperation has not come easy and needs to be doubly cherished by both sides, hoping that the U.S. side will work with China in the same direction and practically cooperate based on mutual respect, equality, and mutual benefit. And that would uh, contribute to the improvement China-U.S. relations. 
That was Zhou Jiaxing reporting. So for more on the topic, let's bring in Harvey Zoding, former vice president of the ABC TV network and a senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Thanks for joining us, Harvey. Sure, Anna. First of all, people are talking about the emergence of a new dynamic or approach in China-U.S. bilateral relationship, given their cooperation on the fentanyl issue. Do you share the same stance? How do the fentanyl talks between China and the United States reflect their relations today? Okay, well, I think it's a promising sign because they do promise、uh, the possible return. To what we call、uh, the status quo ante, the situation that existed before,、uh, the situation that actually lasted from the time of、uh, President Richard Nixon's visit to China in 1972,、uh, and, and that was the week that changed the world. Anna, it、uh, began a period of Sino-U.S. cooperation that endured from when formal diplomatic relations were established between China and the U.S. Under President Jimmy Carter on January one, nineteen seventy nine, basically until Donald Trump came into office on January twentieth, twenty seventeen, saying from that point on it would be only America first.、Um, so I think the crucial factor is going to be if Trump or someone like him is elected president eight months from from now. But.、Um, The talks、uh, differ from most bilateral tra- talks since Trump's term, and also Biden's,、uh, because they reflect the spirit of San Francisco that your reporter talked about.、Mm-hmm. So, on matters of mutual natural interest, where the two nations、uh, can work together in a professional, business-like manner to achieve win-win outcomes, they will. So, it's a possible 180-degree turn. Whose longevity is going to depend on who is elected president and what that person's outlook is going to be.、Mm-hmm. Harvey, before we delve into further, let's take a look at the、uh, fentanyl challenges the U.S. are facing. Could you please offer more insights into the challenges、uh, the United States is facing with such a problem and shed light on the gravity of this issue? Sure. Uh, I'll try to. Fentanyl—it's really a deadly, serious problem because fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin, and it's synthetic. It can be made in a laboratory. If you just touch it in pure form, you're dead.、Mm. The problem is that since it's cheaper than heroin and other street drugs, it's used by dealers、uh, as a cheaper filler. For more expensive opioids, and users actually die without knowing that they had ingested a deadly dose of fentanyl. Fentanyl has indeed flooded into the U.S. across our southern border, especially from、uh, Mexico. If the Republicans in America were serious, they'd be going after this drug instead of people risking their lives for a better future. To me. Their position is as cynical as it is warped.、Uh, even President Biden has talked about a Delaware neighbor who died of fentanyl overdose. Almost everyone in America knows a family blown apart by this killer, or, or is a family that's been experienced a fentanyl-related death. Almost seventy-four thousand people in the U.S. died from a fentanyl、um, overdose. 
2022. That's more than double from 2019. Fentanyl deaths have risen every year, in fact, for the past decade. You have to say that uh, fentanyl is definitely an epidemic in America, and it's really weakening the social fabric of America as well. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has emphasized that China maintains the most resolute anti-drug stance globally, implementing thorough policies and maintaining meticulous records. And China has also actively collaborated with the United States on issues such as the fentanyl. But despite these efforts, certain American politicians and media outlets have been amplifying rhetoric, alleging that China is exporting drugs to the United States attempting to shift the blame onto China. How do you look at such accusations? And now the United States is seeking cooperation with China on this realm. How do you look at the shift from the U.S. side? Yes, it's very interesting. The the U.S. and China agreed to cooperate on fentanyl back in 2019, but due to COVID and then the rising bilateral friction generated largely by Donald Trump, the effort fizzled. So now there's a chance of sustained cooperation. To say that China is exporting drugs to the U.S., it's just a flat-out lie. It is true that China is a large source of the ingredients for making fentanyl in laboratories. But it's also true that in recent years, China has been more closely regulating these ingredients or precursors, as they're called, even changing laws and regulations to make domestic enforcement easier and to make illicit sales more difficult. So to me, the shift is one significant step that the Biden administration is not only concerned about killers like fentanyl, but that they and China also realized that our bilateral relations had sunk to such a dangerously low level that they needed to be stabilized. So I think This is an important realization, and it's one uh, uh, that can continue in the form of cooperation, business-like cooperation, um, in um, the near future, if not longer. Could you elaborate more on on what more efforts should the U.S. government do at home? Because many believe the U.S. should focus on uh, enhancing its own governance rather than solely placing blame on China. What's your take on this? Well, it's a matter of uh, the supply and demand equation. So the steps just announced uh, uh, or expected to be announced uh, as a result of these meetings should lessen the supply side. But that alone isn't enough. America has to do a much better job in detecting illegal precursors. And that's where cooperation with China really comes in. AI actually is also a strong, potential, potent new tool that we have that we didn't have before. Um, There's also need to uh, be demand reduction. And when doing demand reduction, it has to be taken seriously. Stupid campaigns like uh, Ronald Reagan and Nancy Reagan's Just Say No didn't work and they won't work. You really need something more massive and sustained. So in the U.S., What's needed is a massive and sustained, frank educational campaign that has to be waged for years, if not for a generation or more. The same approach worked in the U.S. with cigarettes. So after the government mandated massive warnings on the products themselves and raised taxes 
so that cigarettes were much, much more expensive. Um, the uh, sales of cigarettes actually plummeted, but it took a generation to accomplish. So this same type of will, the same type of expenditures, the same type of exposure are going to be very, very important. A simplistic campaign like uh, just say no is not going to cut it. People have to be educated that if they buy drugs on the street, that they're liable to die. And I think people value, most people value their lives and will take that message to heart. Harvey, as we heard, uh, fentanyl is the leading killer in the United States, and the issue has become a hot topic for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. So in that case, some experts suggest that the Biden administration may use this outcomes of the talks to woo voters. How do you see the potential impact of these discussions on U.S. domestic politics, especially in an election year? Sadly, to me, the war on drugs is it's really decades old and it didn't start with fentanyl and won't end with it. Mm-hmm. It, it. The war on drugs has been spectacularly unsuccessful. The issue is important, of course, but I think that there are more important issues that will decide the election, like war and peace internationally, the economy at home, uh, which is also related to the global economy. So I don't think there's anything wrong with President Biden trying to tout his efforts uh, to uh, control uh, fentanyl and to cooperate with China to mm-hmm. to try to lower this terrible death toll uh, in America. But I don't think the election is going to be determined here. But if we can reach real cooperation with China and other countries on solving some of the problems that face us all, then I think that's going to make a difference. Then back to mapping China-U.S. relations through this cooperation. Do you believe that this cooperation had the potential to demonstrate that a zero-sum game between the two countries can be overcome? I think the operative word is uh, a potential. So uh, absolutely it, it does, and it wouldn't be a second too soon. There's so many areas of cooperation that also need to be undertaken. Let's say like our global environment, which is fast moving beyond the point of no return. If the two leading nations, which are China and the U.S., did cooperate here, there's a small chance that together they can stop and reverse this uh, damage. Similarly, you can talk about global public health. The scientists assure us that another pandemic is not a matter of if, but when. So the clock is also ticking here with no time to spare. And then there's AI that has so many scientists the world over concerned uh, that it has the real near-term potential to change from being our servant to being our master. But, 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 it all depends on the American voters in November. If Biden or a Democrat wins, There is a reasonable chance for a win-win outcome on defeating the scourge of fentanyl and making progress on the other issues, especially if Democrats can wrestle back control of the House of Representatives and widen their slim majority in the U.S. Senate. But if Trump and the Republicans win, just forget it. He and they are going to really do everything to not only build the wall on the U.S. southern border, but to build a wall separating the U.S. and China and the U.S. 
and many other countries on the globe. It's not going to be a pretty picture, but it's a real possibility that that could happen. Thanks, Harvey, for、uh, enlightening analysis on this topic. That's Harvey Zoding, former vice president of the ABC TV network and a senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. The International Monetary Fund has revised its outlook for the global economy this year. It now predicts that global growth will hit 3.1 percent in 2024. That's slightly up from its October forecast. The revision reflects greater confidence in China's fiscal measures and resilience in the United States and several large emerging economies. The fund lifts China's 2024 economic growth outlook to 4.6 percent from its previous estimate of 4.2 percent. Its forecast for the U.S. this year is 2.1 percent and 0.9 percent for both the eurozone and Japan. So, for more discussion on the latest IMF report on global economic outlook, our Zhao Yang spoke with Einar Tangen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. So, Anna, what's the current economic outlook from the latest IMF report, and how does it compare to the previous forecasts? Well, it's actually a great improvement.、Uh, they talk about、uh, China's role and also、uh, perhaps a、uh, resurging、um, or not as weak U.S. economy.、Uh, positives,、uh, possibility of a soft landing, but there are some negatives there. I mean, there is. No discussion about the 60% of Americans who are really having a great difficulty affording the rent,、um, you know, just paying their bills. A lot of defaults, bankruptcies at、uh, all-time highs, etc. Same as in UK. No, a specific reference to U.S. debt, which is now over 123% of the debt to G- GDP ratio, and. There's this kind of continued、um, weird thing where they don't mention the U.S. debt, but they do talk a lot about the debt of、uh, emerging countries, and they say there's a danger zone at 75 percent. It's not clear why it's dangerous for developing and emerging countries to have、uh, 75 percent debt when the U.S. is 123 percent. So we'll see what happens. And could you elaborate more on the various factors that are influencing the global economy now, including the impact of the policy tightening, the supply shortages, and also the financial stress in different economies? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the the concentration is on the two largest economies. They're they're talking that、uh, China has taken steps to address its、um, kind of stimulus things that they believe are are necessary.、Uh, I think China is being very、uh, cautious and making sure that it's not overspending or putting too much stimulus into a system and then causing、uh, problems further down the line.、Uh, in the U.S.,、uh, they're still really buying into this line that inflation has been tamed and therefore. Everything is right with the world. I don't necessarily think that's、uh, correct. As I've said, the 60% of people who are really suffering are probably going to、uh, drive civil change、uh, and perhaps unrest, as we can see with、um, the situation in Texas and the border and things like this.、Uh, basically, it's all you know, kind of this. Um, unhappiness,、uh, in some cases, anger that a lot of people feel because they don't seem to participate when the economy gets good.、Um, around the world, though, there's still lots of issues.、Um, you know, we we could talk about conflict and climate and、uh, 
the kind of competition that's being waged that's uh, erecting uh, barriers between economies. Mm-hmm. And among the downside risks cited by the IMF, a new commodity price spike caused by the geopolitical shocks and uh, global supply chain disruptions. So how do you explain their impact on the global economy? Well, these are kind of unknown. I mean, um, right now you have uh, Gaza and Ukraine, uh, possibly a widening of that uh, in terms of the Red Sea. Uh, The U.S. uh, keeps responding with tit-for-tat actions, uh, saying that they don't want to uh, spread the war to a wider area. Um, But on the other hand, um, making it clear that they are, even if it doesn't work, they're going to continue to uh, press with bombs and bullets. Uh, Climate change and also conflict are the two major unknowns uh, that are out there. Um, You just don't know what it is. Last year was the hottest uh, year on record ever. And, uh, you know, conflict can um, rear up at any point. It's really difficult to tell what the reactions are going to be. The U.S. seems to be locked in this pattern that if there's any challenge to it or to its uh, states that it backs, it will respond uh, militarily. Uh, Unfortunately, this raises the specter of, you know, uh, rerouting uh, supply chains, increasing uh, the price that leads to inflation. And that would put us back where we uh, don't want to be. And what do you expect for the inflation issues in the U.S. and Europe? Well, inflation, it, as I said, a lot of it depends on is, uh, the logistics, uh, which are connected to climate and conflict. Um, the underlying, though, I mean, there's, there, there's this real problem. Uh, for years, you've had uh, increases in uh, labor Uh, but unfortunately not increases in productivity. So generally the rule of thumb is that if you keep uh, paying people more for producing the same or less, that is inflationary. Um, That's unique uh, to developed countries. And you can see it most clearly in Europe, which is really suffering. They don't have the kind of resources the U.S. does. Uh, They're being affected uh, disproportionately by uh, the actions in um, Gaza and also and the, the spread to the Red Sea, as well as Ukraine, uh, and they're really suffering. You can see it in the numbers. The U.S. has more resilience in in that area, but uh, long term, as it tries to pull back and reshore these industries, the problem is it'll be much more expensive. I always use the, um, the example of uh, they they're putting uh, you know making chips in the U.S. that are going to be 30% more expensive than the same chips made in Taiwan. So um, that would apply to almost any industry that's out there. So it's it's clear that they can reshore them, but that will add to inflation within the country and make that uh, make any country that does this less competitive. Mm-hmm. And the IMF also repeated its warning about the possible fragmentation of global trade. So how do you see that implications for the world economy? Well, it's uh, bridges versus walls. Uh, you see China uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, RCEP, um, AIIB, all of these uh, different BRICS, uh, BRICS, BRICS Plus, trying to reach out, build economic bridges between countries, uh, not insisting on any kind of ideological uh, uh, conformity. Whereas on the U.S. side, it's all about ideological conformity, and it's trying to build walls to, quote, protect its markets. You know, there's some uh, always going back to it's a security risk. 
Well, this the greatest security risk is that you isolate yourself from the rest of the world and are uncompetitive. So these, these are the types of things that they're hinting at. Unfortunately, they don't um, deal with them directly. They kind of go around the periphery. Uh, but it's quite clear that if you, if you want a global uh, economy to work, uh, you cannot be erecting barriers. You need more bridges. Mm-hmm. And earlier you mentioned the eurozone economy. Actually, it has got a downgrade and is now expected to grow just 0.9% this year with Germany grappling with its economy. So what do you think are the structural problems for the eurozone economy? Well, it begins with energy. I mean, uh, there were uh, problems before. Uh, then Ukraine came. Uh, it literally tripled the price of of uh, LNG, uh, they used to get it very cheaply through pipelines from Russia, and then because of that, they were forced to uh, buy compressed natural gas, which of course is, has to be transferred and put through processes in order to be done, resulting in a much, much higher cost. That puts them at a competitive disadvantage uh, generally. Uh, as I said before, they also have this issue about um, uh, labor inflation. Uh, labor costs rising but unconnected to productivity. Uh, for a long time, uh, Europe has relied on its brands. Uh, and some luxury brands continue to do well. But, you know, when you hear, you know, high-level uh, automotive industry experts from Germany complaining that a car from China that sells for 50,000 euros is actually better, uh, electric vehicle, is better than the electric vehicle that they sell for 150,000 euros. Uh, it makes it clear that they have to change uh, their uh, approach to manufacturing. Many of them are in China. They're either beefing up their existing relationships with uh, Chinese partners, or they are simply buying uh, new entities uh, where they can produce um, more efficiently in China. That was Einar Tengen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. Coming up, China has set goals for development of future industries to achieve major breakthroughs and leadership in tech innovation. Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger plan to quit West African bloc. And Elon Musk says his neurotech startup has implanted its device in a human for the first time. This is Real Today. We'll be back after a short break. You've been listening to Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. China has issued a new guideline to bolster technological innovation, industrial growth, and safety governance in future industries such as humanoid robots, brain-computer interface, and quantum information. By 2025, the goal is to establish pilot zones and incubators for these industries, achieving breakthroughs in approximately 100 core technologies. And by 2027, China's general trends of future industries is expected to gain significant momentum with major breakthroughs and leadership in certain areas. To delve into these guidelines, Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, explains to me the meaning this guideline holds for China's tech innovation and the new racetracks that will be created. First of all, could you please give us your understanding of the future industries? How significant is the recent government guidelines for tech innovation in these realms? 
we know that for the futures, everybody is thinking about what we can do in the future. There are so many changes, and many of uh, the industries will change its uh, format. Well, for China, I, I think that China is always uh, developing very quickly. So we are thinking about that. We, what we can do in the future, what we can address the challenges like uh, the climate change or other things. So in this re realm, I, I would see that. China's government is really want to combine the different efforts to trying to integrate the different resources to, to find out the better way for China to systematically uh, dealing with the situation and trying to deal with the uncertainties. So for the future industries, there are so many things that we are not so sure, but we are aiming to provide a certain kind of a technology to address the challenges and make it more certain in this regard. These guidelines mention the creation of incubators and pilot zones for future industries. How do you foresee these initiatives impacting the future landscape of Chinese high-tech sectors? What new racetracks will be created? Yeah, we know that China has so many small and medium-sized enterprises, and many of them are so creative. So we are trying to provide the better incubators, and I, I believe that is a, a better way for us to understand that the situation now and the small and medium-sized enterprises can also cooperate with the bigger ones, the most influential, more influential companies. So I think I don't think they are only aiming to help the Chinese own companies, but also we welcome the you know the, the cooperation between Chinese companies and the foreign investors. So they are, if they are here, and I think they are really abandoned to cooperate with each other. And I believe that the systematic ways of providing support will, help, will be helpful for them to be more innovative. The guidelines have set two significant milestones, 2025 and 2027. How do you interpret these timelines, especially the emphasis on China's gaining significant momentum by 2027 with major breakthroughs and leadership in certain areas? Yeah, you know, China is also have a five years plans for the development. While in the coming years, I still see that the trend of cooperation are not only happening between the developed economies, and but also, you know, even between the developing economies. So I think that for next year, it's uh, 2025, it's uh, the beginning of the short term, very short term, about one year plans. Well, for the, you know, a little bit longer, about three years, there are uh, more cooperation, more rooms that we can try to explore. So I would say that, uh, you know, in the past, uh, maybe we have uh, five years or even longer, 10 years plans, but now we are trying to focus on the changes because the changes are developing, are changing very quickly. So we have to adapt ourselves to that, and we have to change our strategies and policy according to the change in the situation. But how feasible are these timelines? What factors you observed today contribute to China's confidence in achieving this goal? Yeah, you know, we, when, we are, when we have set some goals, maybe it's a little bit higher, but I don't think that those uh, goals cannot be achieved. Like what uh, you have mentioned about the seven fields and the scenarios, and I think that China's companies are really good at certain areas, like for the artificial intelligence, and like for some something to do with, uh, you know, the data, because we are also having more plans about the data economy, the digital economy, and the digital trade. So we are all able to provide a better support. And I believe that maybe we cannot, I cannot see exactly 
you know, percentage of the achievements. But I think they gradually change a little bit from the goals. And in this regard, most of these goals can be achievable, maybe not as higher as we expected in a little bit longer before the schedule. But we still believe that that is achievable. We noticed the focus on six key fields, including manufacturing, information, materials, energy, space, and health, is outlined in the guidelines. Which of these sectors do you believe will witness the most transformative changes, and why? Yeah, in my understanding, maybe manufacturing is one of the very Very strong areas in China because、uh, you know China has a very strong manufacturing. I, I mean, it's not on, only about the skills, but also about the potentials. We have a complete set of、uh, all the subsectors of the manufacturing, and their corporations could be very important to support each other. And the manufacturing also have provided such a. A huge demand for the change because the、uh, the involvement of the technology, the involvement of、uh, also other sectors, as you mentioned about the materials, they are able to help the manufacturing to change. Well, on the other side, I would say that the world is expecting Chinese manufacturing to be different, to meet their challenges, like for the solar panels, for the new energies, and like for、uh, many of the、uh, updates of the textiles and the costumes. So Chinese manufacturing change can be very strong and wide. Uh, I mean, cooperations with many other economies that is also helpful by the interconnections between us. But can you provide insights into the potential challenges that China may face in implementing these guidelines and how these challenges might be addressed in the near future? Yeah, the challenges are always there, and in the past, maybe the challenges are because that we are not able to provide enough human resources, made、uh, not able as the technology,、uh, the development of the base. But now, I think that there are some uncertainties from the developed economies, like the United States. They are blocking some of the transfer, some of the. The you know the the business cooperation or transactions between them and us, and also I I think that when we are trying to address the challenges, we need some market because if the market are so are、uh, separated from one country to,、uh, from another, it cannot be able to provide enough strength for the. For the companies to do innovation and have a systematic way of development, well, I would say that technology is another challenge because、uh, the t- technology are are developing very quickly. Like the ChatGPT, they are providing so many possibilities, but these possibilities can also be dangerous if we are not able to control them, to manage them, to have a common principles to deal with them. So I I, I believe that、uh, China is not only doing this by ourselves. We have to cooperate with our partners. We have to understand the situation and share our understandings with them, and then we can provide a better room, better market, or even larger opportunities for different kinds of companies to cooperate together. And with the ecosystems development, it is much better for the you know for the future industries to be accomplished. I mean, as a goal. Speaking of cooperation with more partners, the guidelines also emphasize the international cooperation in research and development. How might collaboration with other countries influence China's position in global technological advancements? Yeah, I, I have to admit that China is still are not leading in many of the areas, but we are trying to provide a better environment. For the you know the different companies to benefit from the development of China's own market, like if the companies from Europe, from United States, from other companies,、uh, other countries, they can come here to invest here 
and cooperate with us. And well, at the same time, I mean, the global supply chains are changing. So we are able to provide a better support by the better, you know, the flow of the data, different kind of resources. And that is also uh, will uh, inject more energy in the international cooperation between China and other countries. Well, for the research and development is one of the priorities for the trading services. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about that, we need more uh, more able principles and more uh, clear uh, market access by different partners. So I believe that many countries also share the same understanding. Maybe they are not just uh, doing right now, but we are hoping that they can do it uh, later in the, in the coming years. And that is also helpful for us to address these challenges. That was Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Mali and Burkina Faso have sent a formal notice of their withdrawal from the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, accusing the body of becoming a threat to its members. Niger is expected to follow suit. The trail alleged that ECOWAS had failed to support their fight against terrorism and insecurity while imposing illegal sanctions. So to talk more on the topic, joining us on the line is Dr. He Wenping, expert on African affairs and senior research fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thanks for joining us, Dr. He. Thanks for having me, Anna. Dr. He, are you surprised by the announcements? Could you elaborate more on the reasons or factors behind their decisions to withdraw from the economic community of West African states? Well, actually, I'm not surprised at all. But the reason is because those three countries uh, already now team together and uh, has, uh, you know, uh, some kind of confrontation uh, with uh, ECOWAS on the issues of, uh, uh, you know, ECOWAS wants to even send the military, like uh, this uh, intervention uh, to Niger, uh, after Niger uh, had uh, come across this uh, military coup. Uh, you know, because all those three countries, uh, the reason they are team up together is because they have all followed the same path uh, to get the power. Uh, now they're all becoming military. Uh, you know, this commission now is the governing body in that country. Uh, this uh, military, uh, you know, official, uh, they're using the coup, uh, this, this kind of uh, unconstitutional way uh, to get the power. So that is why uh, they share the same, uh, this uh, uh, power accessing this uh, path, and also they share the same, uh, those, uh, you know, challenge coming from, uh, ECOWAS, the regional, uh, this, uh, you know, regional community, and also yeah, even from African Union as well. Why these three countries? What's the background behind the increasingly close ties among Mali, uh, Burkina Faso, and Niger? Yes, uh, those three countries, they share uh, the same, uh, now the same situation. Uh, because we know now the Western African countries, Especially those three, uh, together with some others, uh, we call them Sakhle, uh, those countries. They have, they have been facing uh, increasing needs of the terrorist uh, attacks, uh, jihadists, uh, those extremists, uh, those forces. So uh, in all the years, so-called anti-terror war, uh, you know, even French troops also sent there uh, to uh, lead uh, this anti-terror war. And all those years, uh, those relationships between 
uh, the civilian government in those three countries and with the military uh, uh, forces are not, uh, you know, getting along very well. And uh, their relationship even with uh, French troops also not getting that well. So eventually, uh, this military coup uh, broke out one by one. Uh, even French, uh, those uh, anti-terror troops also have been chased away uh, because of the newly uh, 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 power-getting these uh, military officials. Uh, they organized the military commission uh, in charge of all those uh, state affairs. So they are not happy uh, with the uh, French uh, existence. And the French, uh, like Macron, President Macron saying, uh, French will not, uh, France will not recognize uh, those uh, uh, military regimes uh, because they are not uh, get the power through a constitutional way. So that is why they are facing a lot of pressure, uh, not only from uh, like uh, those uh, former colonizer like uh, uh, French and also from African Union, mm-hmm. uh, from regional community, this ECOWAS, uh, economic community of Western African states, because they are before, uh, they are members of this uh, regional uh, this community, because they're all located uh, in the Western Africa, uh, that part uh, of the region. So that is why uh, they, one by one, uh, they gone through the military coup. So they also facing uh, international pressure as well as regional pressure. And they are all, like, even not get uh, fully recognition uh, from many countries uh, in the world. So they are team up. That is why uh, they share the same things, a lot of things together. Uh, that is also why now they make uh, the same move, uh, you know, quit uh, from this ECOWAS. Uh, because mm-hmm. ECOWAS now remains, uh, you know, uh, imposed sanctions, economic sanctions for those three countries. Before, uh, even ECOWAS had a very tough time towards Niger. Because Niger was the recent uh, military coup uh, this country. So uh, ECOWAS saying uh, uh, after this Niger military, uh, the Kutita saying you have to, uh, you know, give the power back to the civilian government uh, within a certain certain time. Otherwise, uh, even threatening, saying otherwise, uh, ECOWAS will send uh, these troops uh, to do military intervention. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, seen the story followed. That is, a Niger official, military official, of course, they are not surrender uh, to ECOWAS. They are not surrender, even got uh, those backup from Mali, from Burkina Faso. Uh, those three countries signed this joint collective security agreement. Uh, they threatening back to ECOWAS, saying if ECOWAS there uh, to make any uh, like a military intervention to Niger, that will be regarded as a war also towards money, towards Burkina Faso. So money, Burkina Faso, and Niger, they will, you know, uh, team up together to defend uh, this, uh, this, they are saying, this aggression coming from uh, uh, ECOWAS. Uh, you see, uh, those three countries, uh, they share now uh, collective security. Uh, they even made a joint like a military drill uh, to defend each other. Uh, with uh, a team, uh, this kind of, uh, you know, spirit way.
Uh, it's being called West Africa's Brexit moment as the three nations took cut ties from the regional alliance. But in what ways might this decision impact the economic dynamics and overall stability of the West African region? What challenges might this withdrawal present for both ECOWAS and the region? Oh, yes, of course. The ECOWAS were not happy to see three countries all of a sudden and, uh, quit from this uh, regional uh, block because ECOWAS was established uh, in the year 1975. So its aim, its purpose is to do this regional integration. So it has like uh, 15 member states. So all in the located in the Western African region. And Nigeria, is, we all know Nigeria is the biggest uh, economy, biggest economy in whole Africa continent. Of course, Nigeria has been playing uh, the leadership role. Uh, so they are not only focused on economic integration. Uh, given those years passed on, uh, this uh, ECOWAS also has a lot of, uh, you know, this uh, responsibility, like to maintain stability, uh, to uh, defend democracy. Uh, like to against those uh, military coups, uh, to defend those civilian government has been elected on. So all those are now becoming uh, this uh, mission. Uh, ECOWAS has been, uh, you know, now uh, committed to do. So of course, uh, given so many years of uh, integration, uh, now suddenly uh, this defense democracy uh, has facing the panic because military coup one by one, one by one. And then even those countries can adapt here uh, to those, uh, you know, warring and then even threatening to military intervention coming from ECOWAS. So they put the ECOWAS authority also in danger. Yes, thanks, Dr. Ho Wenping, expert on African affairs and a senior research fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Neuralink founder Elon Musk said his neurotech startup has implanted its device in a human for the first time. Musk said the patient has been recovering well. The company is developing a brain implant aimed at helping patients with severe paralysis control external technologies using only neural signals. For more, my colleague Liu Kun earlier spoke with Andy Mock, tech analyst and senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. First up, help us understand the basic science of this. What kind of implant is this and why is it able to move a person's body? Sure. Well, there's two, I think, main components of this. One, this is a physical device that I think is about the size of a U.S quarter, so a 25-cent piece, that is physically implanted uh, in, over a part of a person's brain, and then uh, this device is used to pick up signals uh, from the brain, so when the neurons, uh, the cells of the brain, uh, fire or emit an electrical impulse, uh, this device picks it up, uh, transmits it uh, to an outside device that can be used to control a cursor on a computer or perhaps a uh, prosthetic limb. So the two parts here are important to point out. First, uh, actually implanting a device into people's brains is not that difficult. That's mm-hmm. something that's been done uh, for some treatments. It's considered a fairly uh, conventional therapy. The big question is, can this device 
after it's implanted, really do what uh, Neuralink and other people hope it will do, meaning that can it capture the right signals? Can these signals be transmitted and converted into uh, controlled movements? So I think it's the second part. Uh, that's in question. Andy, Elon Musk said, "quote unquote," initial results show promising neuron spike detection. That refers to, you know, the cellular activity between our brains and our nerve systems. I'm sure you've been following this.、Um, so, what、uh, strikes you most about, you know, the science parts, the papers, and the research results on this? Some scientists, and I'm not a scientist,、mm. is that we have to be careful. What this actually means, and without seeing the data, it's hard to draw any、uh, absolute conclusions. But a hopeful interpretation of it means that、uh, the right signals are being picked up. So, yeah, that's a crucial first step. But then, can that then be translated into、uh, some physical movement that is controlled by a person's brain? And I think that's the middle part. And my understanding is that it will take a little bit of time, at least, for these signals to be gathered and processed before we will know whether、uh, it actually can control movement in the way that is desired and intended. Elon Musk said、uh, the initial users will be those who have lost the use of their limbs. And here's what he said:、uh, "Quote unquote. Imagine if a Stephen Hawking could communicate faster than a speed typist or auctioneer. That's the goal. I mean, how do you see the prospects of that? Well, I think it certainly、um, would solve a very important problem and a very severe problem. That being said, the number of people that are suffering from, I believe, the term is quadriplegia,、uh, where they have lost." Uh, the use of their four limbs due to some sort of nervous system trauma, or、uh, so. Yes, I mean that could be life-changing for people, but I think that the broader use case is much more profound, and that once you can do that,、uh, you can restore movement somehow through an exoskeleton or whatever、uh, to someone that has suffered from quadriplegia.、Um, You can use it to control artificial devices、mm. in your brain, and then you know it becomes science fiction, right?、Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's the ultimate vision. Because again, if you could solve the problem for someone that has lost the use of their own limbs, maybe it's not that far a jump then to control something that was not originally part of your body. What other medical areas can this、uh, technology be applied into, in your observation? Well, I think this really depends, right?、Mm-hmm. So, of course, it can be used to help people regain movement they've lost, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one. Another could be augmentation. So, this is not necessarily replacing function you already have, but giving you functions you never had.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, it could be cognitively. Maybe you can be augmented through、uh, a computer. So, your brain. You know, we see this. In the movie The Matrix, right, where you <laughs> download new information to your brain, as as uh, Neo, uh, the Keanu Reeves character, gets、uh, an upload of information, and suddenly he knows kung fu, right? <laughs>、um, that's another, and you know, we could either say that there are、uh, diseases of the brain where people's brains can't do certain things, and through this、uh, implant, this augmentation, they now can.、Uh, but it can give ordinary people super Superhuman powers as well,、mm. uh, 
is is another we can think of it uh, as uh, a kind of a medical case, I suppose. Mm, right. Now, Andy, uh, help us understand the global picture. I mean, how are other countries, which are traditionally strong in medical technologies, you know, for example, uh, Europe or Australia? I mean, how are they progressing in this area? Well, I think if we want to think about this broadly as brain-computer interface um, as as an area, mm. um, you know, I believe all major countries uh, are looking at this. Um, and again, are we at a kind of a chat GPT moment, meaning <laughs> that right. uh, there's many entities, many countries working on this area, but someone, you know, kind of finds that, uh, unlocks the Rubik Cube, right, <laughs> uh, where it captures the, the popular imagination and, you know, they've packaged it in a way that becomes much more accessible. Now, that being said, um, clearly this requires a surgical procedure. So uh, it's not like overnight there'll be millions or tens of millions of people doing this. But um, conceptually, uh, you know, we that might be one way to understand what's going on. So, Andy, um, there have been ethical concerns on this issue. I mean, what are some of the main concerns here, especially on whether and where, you know, humanity should draw the line in our integration with technology? Sure. Well, you know, I think there's, I would say, micro-level ethical issues in that, you know, is it responsible to be doing this to humans without really knowing what's going to happen. And we could make an argument that if you're a consenting uh, adult, you know, you can freely choose these risks. So if it goes horribly wrong, you know, you can't blame the company. Uh, But the broader ethical issues I think you you touched on are uh, what does this do to equality more profoundly? If we become cyborgs, part human, part machine, uh, what does it then mean to be human? So these this raises actually questions very similar to artificial intelligence in that it may uh, profoundly change the political uh, foundation of what we base society on and may even change what it means to be human. That was Andy Mark, tech analyst and a senior research fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. That's all the time we have for this edition of Road Today with Mika Anna. Thank you so much for staying with us. Bye for now.